at Simon Vine. I will turn everything over to you. I'll even I'll even move your slides for you for a while. Thank you, Mark. And uh, if you can please uh, pass me the control, I will show my slides myself. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to our deep dive on SPACs. My name is Simon Wind, and, uh, and I will run a quick introduction. SPAC became the most discussed financial instrument of 2020, yet many still need SPACs 101 to get a better grasp. Not another repetitive 101 which you can read anywhere, but an actionable 101. And that is what we're set to do. We will have two parts, the first one to cover the basics and the second one to answer your questions. Steve Hellman will give us the SPAC industry overview and trends, and he will share his views of a banker on this market as well. Steve is an unusual banker because he has a very diverse experience, and he is also a very compassionate and well-meaning person. Please don't relate these words to his bosses. Matthew runs an ETF platform. And one of his ETFs is SPCX, a SPAC ETF that invested in almost 80 SPACs. He, therefore, will share with, you, with us the point of view of an investor. In our Q&A session, we'll be joined by Jonathan Rosenzweig and Fred, and Fred uh, Greer. Jonathan is a CEO, is a CFO of a SPAC, and before that, the head of research of, uh, for Americas at Citi. Fred runs a fund that invested in a few SPACs. Overall, we expect to get an excellent general insight in the instrument and market trends. I will start with a couple of technical and macro issues to prepare the grounds for others. Let's discuss the uh, SPACs and how they really work. A special purpose acquisition company, SPAC, is a corporate shell and an entity whose sole asset is cash available for a merger with a real producing asset. SPAC, as an instrument, officially has existed for 30 years, but unofficially for even longer in the form of so-called reverse merger. It was used when a private company wanted to go public by merging with a cheap uh, uh, public company. Recently, SPACs gained popularity because of relatively new provisions that guaranteed investors an exit at the time of their choice. In fact, the word investors is a bit misleading because there are three different groups whose interests often don't align. So let's quickly discuss these groups and their interests. The first group is investors in risk capital. They're also called founders or sponsors. Their money is used to set up the companies they take public, the corporate shell that will be IPO'd. If the SPAC doesn't find a target to merge with, uh, it will expire in approximately two years, and this group of investors will lose everything. The investors in the second stage, you see them on this chart, um, they, uh, they, they invest in IPOs, and it is them who can withdraw their money at any point by sending their request to the trustee that holds money raised during the IPO. Even if they withdraw, they will keep warrants and some interest paid for their cash. Here, we need to explain what the investors get at the IPO. 
they get units that are comprised of stocks and warrants. For instance, on average, the investor in an IPO will receive a unit comprised of one stock and the warrant uh, and half a warrant. At IPO, the unit receives a ticker, but soon thereafter, a stock and the warrant will get their tickers as well, and all three start trading independently. If such an investor decides to exit the SPAC at some point, he'll receive 100% of his investment, I should have his or her, of course, uh, plus interest, and will keep his warrants. Since the initial investors in, in IPOs have their risk limited, many of them receive 4x leverage. Therefore, when they withdraw their capital, their total return on short-term investments in SPAC uh, in SPACs re- reaches 20% per annum because they keep warrants and interest. Because of such investors, at the time of a merger, SPACs often end up with less money they initially de- declare. And during the merger time, the founders need to find the missing money, uh, the missing money, and they look for investors in pipe, the third category of investors. It does equity investors interested in the company uh, that the SPAC is about to merge with. In other words, at the time of a merger, uh, all three types of investors in, uh, are present. Let's once again go over why companies like, like SPACs as an instrument of going public. Uh, for one thing, they can do it, they can go public twice faster than through a traditional IPO process. Some also say that they are cheaper than IPO, the SPACs are cheaper than IPOs, but this is not always the case. However, the crucial advantage of the SPAC is that the company can be valued on its projections. In the IPO process, the companies can present only their historical results and leave the investors to develop their projections. In in SPACing, they can base their valuations on their own uh, projections. Imagine a company that generates around uh, $8 million EBITDA and grows at 30% per annum, per annum. Let's say it is valued at around $350 million in a private market. Uh, the likely pipe, pipe investors will assume that in three years, its EBITDA will grow to around $20 million uh, because uh, the initial uh, 8 to $10 million will be uh, grown at 30% per year. The average multiple is around 30x, and the average discount at the merger is around 20-25%. So let's say uh, the, the, in three years, it's, uh, it will be generating $17 million uh, multiplied by 30 times, uh, 30, 35 times EBITDA minus uh, 25% discount. It will reach a valuation of around $500 million, 500 million, which is much larger than the alternative C round. But wait, this valuation can be higher if publicly traded comparables have higher multiples. One has to remember that many companies that merge with SPACs are not valued at EBITDA, but rather on sales or stages of regulatory approval. So the price discovery works differently for different industries. Finally, 
how sustainable is this market? Because of this immense bump-ups and valuations, growing company uh, want to use the SPACs route, route rather than doing IPOs. But because of this size of interest, more and more SPACs have been appearing daily. This mushrooming raised fear of a likely collapse of the SPAC bubble. We think uh, that while the market is growing very fast, it is not at the bubble stage and at least three, for at least three reasons. We are in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution, and the SPAC is its preferred financial instrument, as junk bonds were good for mid-sized companies in the 80s, and convertible bonds became a popular tool for early-stage startups in 2010. The second reason, while the number of the SPAC, SPACs grows, uh, we, uh, even more companies are interested in using this instrument, this instrument. COVID accelerated the growth of their technology, technologies adoption, and they are getting ripe for SPACs as we speak, while maybe not ready for IPOs. The U.S. market has been, and the third reason is that the U.S. market has been shrinking for 10 years, the U.S. equity market and welcomes new public companies, especially because they are in new te technologies. This is not to say that the market will not grow, uh, will keep growing at this rate, or each segment will be successful. The question is probably not whether this is another tulip mania, uh, but rather which types of in investors will be more successful, uh, and whether or not the premiums which they pay for uh, SPACs will uh, continue to be high. And on this optimistic note, I pass the mic to Steve Hellman. Steve, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, uh, and uh, greetings. I want to thank uh, Mark and Simon for inviting me to, to appear on this panel. I'll, I'll try not to repeat much of what uh, Simon has spoken about in, in his very excellent introduction to, uh, to the SPAC products. Uh, but just by way of background, uh, I'm a managing director at Credit Suisse. I've been a legal and financial professional for over 30 years. I've worked on scores of IPOs and other financings in most every sector uh, and most every geography, including the U.S., Europe, LATAM, and emerging markets. Similarly, my experience with SPACs spans uh, a period of many years. Uh, my first introduction to the product was actually in the early 2000s. I was working as a young MD in, uh, in Los Angeles, and I had a, a rising director working under me, and we were concerned about trying to find a platform for him. Uh, and somebody suggested in New York that this, uh, that this young director go work on SPACs. And at the time, nobody had even heard what SPACs were, frankly, outside of uh, RECM desk. And we really thought this was the kiss of death for 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 an ambitious young banker. And as it, as it turns out, it was, because at that time there were very few SPACs uh, that were transacting in the markets. That, that flash forward to 2011, I was running investment banking in Russia, uh, and I was approached by some uh, SPAC sponsors who wanted to do uh, an EDM-based SPAC. Uh, to me, it was a bit of a curiosity, but I really thought there was some merit to what they were talking about, because... For any of you familiar with uh, the IPO business in Russia, it has very narrow market windows. And we thought the benefit of the SPAC would be that they could avoid getting caught by these windows uh, uh, that were quite narrow, and, and they would have the ability to 
to merge a Russian business into a SPAC uh, at their leisure. Uh, unfortunately, the SPAC IPO itself was caught up uh, in a complete shutdown of the Russian market, and it never came to uh, came to uh, to being. Further, flash forward to 2017, and I invested in my first SPAC, uh, a company called 12Cs, which was EM-focused, and I advised that SPAC, and ultimately they did a deal where they purchased an oil terminal in Abu Dhabi. But we learned a lot of lessons in that endeavor. Uh, because of the lateness of finding a transaction, in fact, the deal closed on the, at the very end of the two-year period for the SPAC. Uh, they were not able to raise a pipe. All in all, I think they raised maybe 20 or 30 million dollars from a very, uh, a very, uh, enterprising uh, hedge fund that took advantage to them at the end of the day. And they suffered almost 100% redemptions uh, of the trust. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the target, uh, that was merged into the SPAC, uh, only realized about 20 or 30 million dollars of proceeds. Flash forward to 2019, and I, I, were, I, I joined the Goris Group and advised them for a period prior to COVID. Goris is, if you are familiar with the SPAC space, is a serial SPAC uh, sponsor uh, and really one of the pioneers in the space. Uh, and working with them, I got a tremendous uh, perspective, a very interesting perspective from a principal side as to how they think about SPACs. Uh, and how they go about uh, uh, marketing them uh, to potential targets. Now, uh, Credit Suisse, as you may know, is a, uh, a very prominent player in the SPAC market. And on slide two, uh, I just show you our relative position to the market, not so much to advertise, but really to give you a sense as to the sheer volume of this business today. Uh, we advised the loan on $150 billion of activity last year on the M&A side, and we did over $13 billion of underwriting volume. And you can see what our, our competitors did. So it is a truly a very large and growing market. So if you, if you move on then to slide four and five, slide five, uh, the next slides, you can see that uh, we're really in something of a mania in this market, uh, similar to tulips and other manias that we've seen in the past. Uh, just this year alone, there have been 300 SPAC IPOs as of the end of the first quarter. So even my slide is out of date. Uh, that's more than in all of 2020. And if you, if you switch to the next page, uh, slide five, you will see that um, there are now over 415 SPACs out there. Again, this slide is slightly out of date. There are more SPACs that have come uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, and uh, what this slide doesn't say is that there's over 150 SPACs that are in registration. And I can tell you from personal experience that I have been uh, call, received calls from my clients over the last several days about a desire to register even more SPACs with the SEC. Uh, and I've been quietly discouraging them in light of uh, the sheer uh, pipeline and volume of deals that will ultimately need to be to get done to satisfy uh, this huge number of SPACs in, in the marketplace. So what's been driving this mania? I think that's really the question here. Uh, when I was working with Goris in the 2000s, you know, really SPACs were uh, sort of the last, the last vestige of a, uh, of a broken deal. Uh, it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And everybody we spoke to, uh, very few people uh, in the professional community, be it private equity funds, VC, 
And even many bankers really didn't know what a SPAC was or how it worked. So you can imagine how difficult it was to market SPACs and to find SPAC transactions. But all of that really changed uh, with the DraftKings and the Virgin uh, Galactic uh, transactions at the end of uh, 2019, the beginning of 2020. And then it was supercharged with the uh, with uh, with COVID. And so what was really driving this? I think it's a it's a it's conflation or a confluence of a few factors. First of all, very historically low interest rates, uh, a shrinking of the equity risk premium and then this wall of investor money, uh, including stimulus money, which brought a lot of retail money into the into the market. And I mention this because it's very important, because what I think we've seen uh, SPACs really have become, uh, if, even if they weren't intended to be, they became, in essence, a champion of this democratization trend that we're seeing in IPOs. Because as many of you know, IPOs have really been the domain of, uh, of a very select audience of, uh, of, of large institutional investors. And what SPACs have done, certainly over the last year, is they basically opened up uh, effectively IPOs to a whole new audience of investors, particularly these retail investors that have, are sitting on their, you know, thousand uh, dollar stimulus check from the federal government and looking to play in the market. But SPAC mergers, as I mentioned, are not low risk propositions and really never have been, frankly. As I said, historically, this, it was typically, uh, a SPAC would be, uh, a SPAC transaction would typically involve a company that had tried many other routes uh, and simply had no other course. Uh, DraftKings, for example, one of the most successful SPACs uh, of our time, uh, would have gone regular way IPO, I believe, had it not been that underwriters felt that because of all the regulatory questions uh, uh, in, in the different states about legalization of online gambling, uh, many, many banks felt that it would not succeed in the traditional uh, IPO market. And so it ended up going the, uh, the, the SPAC route. And you can see how successful it's been. I think at last, uh, at last count, the stock was trading in, in the $60 range and has been even higher. But the SPAC market is, uh, is really resetting now. Uh, and this may be, in fact, a very healthy thing. As I said, in the first quarter alone, uh, 300 SPACs uh, came to market. $100 billion of SPAC money was raised in the first quarter. That's versus only $40 billion of regular way IPOs. But currently, there are over 300 SPACs that are trading below the reference value of $10. In the last week, we only saw two new SPAC IPOs. And I can tell you from personal experience that virtually every type transaction that we're working on now is either failing or, or being re, uh, the terms are being recut. Uh, and, but, but that's not to say that the SPAC markets are unique here because we're also seeing that IPO markets are struggling in general because while the overall equity markets are grinding higher gradually towards record levels. Underneath the surface, a lot of these higher risk names uh, and, and SPACs and IPOs are, are truly at the higher ends uh, of the risk spectrum in terms of equities. Uh, they are really suffering and SPACs are giving back a lot of the value that was generated earlier, earlier in the year. Uh, many of the SPACs that were trading in the 20s and the 30s some of them on the absence of any deal announcements whatsoever 
are now trading below ten dollars, uh, suggesting that many of these deals will fail uh, and the and the trust will be redeemed. So the, I guess the sixty-four thousand dollar question is: Does this correction spell you know Armageddon or doom for the four hundred plus spats that are out there, the one hundred and fifty or two hundred that are in registration? And what does it mean for the asset class in general? So to answer this question, and without really uh, repeating a lot of what, uh, what what Simon said, let's talk a little bit more about some specific attributes of the SPAC market and the SPAC product. So if you turn to page, um, I'm sorry, page six, who are doing SPACs? Well, it would seem if you read the Wall Street Journal or you read People magazine, you'll realize that it just seems to be about everybody's doing a SPAC. But I do not think this is sustainable. Um, I think that over time we're going to see a winnowing down of the uh, of the SPAC uh, a market, uh, a true case of financial or social Darwinism. Many of these celebrity SPACs will uh, fail, uh, and ultimately the market I think will narrow down to only uh, the most uh, the best sponsors in terms of those with the greatest access to capital. Or, or true specialists who have significant operating uh, uh, expertise in particular sectors or domains who can bring tremendous value to, to a SPAC. And so if we come to our next uh, slide, really the question is what differentiates a top-tier sponsor? And, and it is uh, a really uh, two things. It's the ability to deliver uh, capital or the ability to deliver expertise. So as an example, when I worked with Goris in 2019, uh, what made them special and why they have been uh, 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 one of the leading SPAC sponsors is that they are truly excellent in bringing capital uh, to a transaction. Uh, the Goris Family Trust, uh, Alec and Tom Goris, have access to a significant amount of their own personal capital. And in addition, they have a, uh, a very loyal group of uh uh, of investors that have invested with them and made money over the years, and they can bring them to bear in a pipe transaction and therefore deliver effectively a jumbo transaction to a target. Uh, oftentimes, two to three times what that target did hopes to, to, to realize in a regular way IPO. And then there are many other SPACs out there, several of which are, are listed uh, uh, in the tombstones on the prior slide, uh, of, of true financial professionals who have uh, a brand names in the industry, whether it's an Ackman or a Foley, who simply by putting their name on a SPAC will really provide a stamp of approval to investors and therefore will almost guarantee that that SPAC will be successful. I think these two types of SPACs are going to be the ones that are going to be the survivors going forward. If we turn then to slide, uh, to slide eight, uh, Simon touched upon this earlier, but the question is, you know, what does the SPAC offer to sellers that a regular way IPO does not? Well, first of all, it offers uh, uh, liquidity uh, and, and quickly. Uh, on the next slide, you'll see timing relative to a traditional IPO. Why don't we jump to slide nine? And you can see that relative to a traditional IPO, uh, a SPAC has the ability to uh, close the transaction really from soup to nuts uh, in maybe a month or even sooner than a typical IPO uh, might require. Uh, going back to the prior slide, so in terms of liquidity, uh, really one of the benefits of a SPAC is uh, if a typical IPO 
maybe you could sell 25% to the company and a nice size IPO might be, uh, you know, for a $2 billion company might be a $500 million of proceeds uh, to the company. One of the benefits of a SPAC is for a $2 billion SPAC, that would typically involve a trust that's four to $500 million in size. And if you can bring a pipe on top of that, you could effectively double the size uh, uh, of the trust and bring a billion dollars to the table to the selling a company. So effectively, a one and a half to maybe even two times what, you, what, a, what a company could receive in a regular way IPO and all at once. Whereas a regular IPO, it's a, a regular way IPO going company might require several transactions and maybe a year or two before they can realize that similar amount of proceeds taking market risk in the interim. Uh, SPACs have a tremendous amount of structural uh, flexibility. You can do many different things in terms of uh, 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 capital, debt, equity, and so forth in a way that uh, perhaps a, an IPO cannot do. Uh, there's rapid execution, as I spoke about on the next slide. And then there's the ability to bring uh, managerial expertise or a strategic partner to bear uh, to really augment the capabilities of a young company looking to do an IPO. And then the final point I would raise, and Simon mentioned this earlier, is the difference between an IPO where you go public through an S1, where you cannot provide investors with forward-looking statements. A SPAC, as you know, is done through a merger on S4. And therefore, and there you can pro provide a tremendous amount of insight into the future of the business to investors, which is something that uh, I can tell you as a, as a banker, having worked for so many years on so many IPOs uh, in many different parts of the world, is truly an advantage uh, from a marketing pers perspective. If you move to then, if we move into slide 10, uh, the question is sort of what's in it for the sponsor? Well, as you can see on this slide, it is a very attractive proposition uh, and one that I would argue is not probably sustainable over the long term. So if a typical SPAC, let's say, raised $100 million of trust money, uh, $25 million on top of that is added for the SPAC sponsor. So effectively, 20% pro forma dilution uh, to the target company if it does a deal with the SPAC. And that's why a SPAC the SPAC target needs to be sufficiently large in size to effectively dilute down that, that, that uh, uh, sponsor promote. But you can see since the sponsor is getting their, 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 their shares for virtually nothing beyond their risk capital that they're putting in, if the shares trade up to $15 even, the, their return on their capital is upwards of 20 times. So it's a phenomenally lucrative uh, a proposition for SPAC sponsors if they do it correctly and are not forced to give away a lot of their sponsor economics to the target, to the pipe investors, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, Can we ask a question specific to sure. this slide? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, I represent uh, a Fortune 50 company's management team that uh, – has expired all of their non-compete agreements. Uh, they were purchased by another Fortune 50 company, and uh, they are going to form a SPAC. Your firm has been recommended along with another Wall Street firm. Uh, we've interviewed both. Um, the question that I have, and our legal counsel, which is Wild Gotchell, 
uh, has advised us that on the sponsor side, uh, that the risk capital uh, can be provided by some funds that are out there. What I'm trying to understand is if you've got the full C-suite of a Fortune 50 company intact that's going to do a SPAC in a specific industry that, that by, by the way, this C-suite delivered 80 to 1 ROI to investors higher than any C-suite in the last 20 years. What, what's the question? Because what The to... question is, how do you divide the, the, the sponsor capital uh, up, this, the, the, the risk capital? Is it all, does that, that 20%, how's it divided between directors, management, and the risk capital? And, and how, oh. what's your advice in that area? Okay, so my advice is let, let me tell you what our firm policy is, and I don't know what other firms do in this regard, but I will tell you that uh, we, as a policy, we do not underwrite SPACs where uh, the the, uh, the risk capital has been syndicated out to third-party funds. And I'll tell you why we do that. We really do it as sort of a due diligence measure because we feel that if SPAC sponsors don't have enough skin in the game and they can't afford to put up the 7 or $8 million dollars, to basically fund the SPAC when they when they could potentially earn 20 times their money, you know we're concerned that that will not fly well with the the investors that we then want to bring in and the pipe investors that we need to bring in to make the fund the, the SPAC successful. Uh, is that does that answer your question or was it even broader? Well, it, it answers my question, but that's not the legal advice that we're getting, and that's oh, not the, the, the other firms are giving us. So yeah, I, I yeah. that's your firm's position. That's an easy position to take. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand, Mark. It's uh, uh, that's that's just the view that we've taken, uh, simply because we really feel that the, that the uh, the sponsors, particularly if they're they're coming from the CC suite and from big firms, you know, uh, my assumption is that many of them, if not all of them, are, are quite well healed and they can afford to put up this risk capital. But if uh, they're syndicating no it out to others, no question. Yeah. So, so if they're syndicating it out to other parties. It really quite, in our view and from our committee's perspective, it brings to, to, to bear the question of, you know, how serious or how committed are these sponsors to get the deal done? Because we want it to hurt if it doesn't. We don't want this to be sort of a, a, a side, you know, a, a kind yeah, of a, yeah. a, 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 a something that they're doing a lot on the side. Stephen, stay on court because I don't know we have the other speaker to go. Yeah, apologies. So, so let me, let me, uh, so, so from the, uh, the next slide on page 11, uh, in terms of uh, return dynamics for, for SPAC investors, uh, uh, investors, so, so this is an important point. What this slide really doesn't talk about are the hedge fund investors that invest in SPACs. And, and this may be a surprise to many of you, but these investors couldn't care less for the most part what company you are looking to merge to. They are in a cash management game. And the way it works is effectively hedge funds invest their excess capital. They invest it with prime service brokers like ourselves. Uh, and they get eight or nine to one uh, leverage against their money, uh, which is invested in treasuries. So it is a virtually no risk means of basically getting 10 times their money. Uh, even if the deal doesn't uh, 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 occur, in other words, that the, uh, that the SPAC doesn't find the merger candidate. Uh, and so once the SPAC is announced, they will typically uh, move out of the, of the SPAC. They will strip out their warrants, which is another huge upside for them, and they'll play the, the long side on the warrants. 
but they'll want to, they'll want that de-spec to occur into loan-only investors. Uh, so that's a very interesting element of the whole SPAC uh, uh, universe and some one thing that uh, many investors or, or third-party participants are, are not cognizant of. Uh, my last uh, few slides are, uh, the next slide is about the pipe market. And the reason I included this is that it is, you need to understand in order for a SPAC to be successful, you must have a, a successful pipe because the pipe is really critical to validate uh, the transaction and really set the price for the market. So if the, if the pipe doesn't occur and, uh, and there's no new money coming in in addition to the trust, it's almost certain that the, that the, uh, that the, tri- that, that the shares will trade below $10 uh, and that all of the trusts will be redeemed uh, and there will be very little, if any, money to deliver to the target at close. And since most of these deals are done on a min- minimum cash delivery basis, uh, it's probably the case that that transaction will fail. So uh, with those with those comments, um, I think I wanted to end on the question of, uh, you know, where does the SPAC, where does the SPAC market go uh, from here? Um, and I think a, f- a few comments. One, I think we are going to see a washout in the near term. And this isn't unique to SPAC markets. It's all, all, all new uh, financial markets have experienced this over time. And that's not a bad thing. I think it's a healthy, healthy thing. I think many of these 400 SPACs that are out there now and the 150 plus in registration, they will fail and not get a deal. And their money bill return to the, uh, to the SPAC uh, investors uh, who will actually do okay. But risk capital will be lost. As I said earlier, I do believe that there will be consolidation of the market among top-tier brands and sponsors and specialists who have true value-add or can really bring significant capital to the table, really a case of financial Darwinism. The other point I would make is that I believe that it is not sustainable that we're going to see the level of promote uh, that sponsors are enjoying currently. I believe that over time, just like every other financial product, margins and returns are going to be winnowed down as the result of competition, as the result of stack-offs, as a result of refinements of the SPAC product. But in summary, I would say, just like the advent of the high-yield market, as Simon uh, astutely mentioned in the 80s, uh, which suffered through many cycles, I think the SPAC market is now a mainstream asset class, and it's a financial instrument that is poised to endure for the long term. Thank you, and I look forward to any comments and to uh, our panel discussion. Great. Simon, you're on mute. I have a question. Um, so are there minimum uh, uh, parameters that specs um, – would stay away from versus, uh, uh, you know, kind of say, okay, you meet the kind of minimum requirements to get in. Luke, can we hold that question to the end? It's going to get covered over uh, the course of the the other speakers. All right, gotcha. We'll we'll do that. And uh, sorry, I I do have problems with uh, the mute button. Uh, And now, please, Give uh, your warm welcome to uh, Matthew, who will tell us uh, about a less known area of the Spark world, which is related to ETFs. Uh, Matthew, the mic is yours. 
Great. Thank you uh, for having me. Uh, can it, I think I'm sharing my screen, right? All right, cool. So um, as Simon mentioned, we manage the largest SPAC ETF. Uh, we own a lot of SPACs. We're very active in the market, pretty much on a daily basis doing things. We're also investors in, in all three phases. So we participate in founder shares deals. We buy SPACs as an investor. And we're also starting to participate in pipe transactions. So one of the big things I, I love about SPACs are that it, it, done correctly, this gives you an, an asymmetric return stream. Traditionally, when Wall Street offers you an asymmetric return stream, it's the way you don't want it. It's, you know, hey, we've got this product that's got unlimited downside and your upside is limited. Done appropriately, SPACs have limited downside and, you know, almost unlimited upside. They also, from time, you know, sometimes they correlate, but from time to time, they are completely uncorrelated with what's going on in, in stocks. So, you know, how do you evaluate these things? First off, you know, under, understand what you've got. A, with a SPAC, you've got $10 in the bank. You've got some fraction of a warrant. You've got a management team with some sort of biography. So what is really key in, in you know, the previous speaker touched on this, who, who is the management team? What have they done? One of the great things now that the SPAC market's starting to mature is you're seeing sponsors come out with their second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, and so on deal. So you get a sense, you know, what, what have these guys done you know, in the past? But still with any management team, you know, you've got a biography. You can look and see what have they done? You know, what areas are they working on? Uh, you know, celebrity SPACs have, have been mentioned. The SEC has mentioned that. We look at celebrities, they're eye candy. You want to look through who is the underlying management team. The next key thing is valuation. What is the SPAC trading at? So remember that $10 level is extremely important. You want to be buying a SPAC under 10 if you can, which today you can. I mean, there are a lot of them under 10, but you certainly don't want to go too far above 10. Diversification is also extremely important. A lot of times, you know, I'll be talking to the media, they're like, hey, give us one, give us your favorite SPAC pick. And this is not like a stock. You know, it's not, you know, hey, I think, um, you know, GameStop is, is a great stock and it's going to go up. With SPACs, you've got, you know, $10 and a management team looking for a deal. All I know is if I've got a large portfolio of SPACs, some of them are going to fail and I'm going to get my $10 back. Some of them are going to be singles. They'll announce a deal. Maybe it'll trade to 1020 and I'll sell it there. Some of them are going to be doubled. Some of them are going to be home runs. You know, the, the CCIV is where we bought it at 17 and sold at 33. That's going to happen every once in a while, but you don't know off the, off the bat. You know, again, doing your due diligence helps narrow the field, but you don't know off the bat. You've got to have a, a, a large portfolio of SPACs diversify by industry, uh, diversify by management teams. The state of the market is also important. A couple of, you know, a few weeks ago, we would beg, borrow, and steal. I think I even offered up my firstborn 
to get IPO allocations. And back then we were competing with the hedge funds who would get the IPO allocation and immediately flip it, but they're generating billions of dollars in commissions, so they were hard to compete with. Now I can get any IPO I want and as much as I want, but now maybe I don't want them. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, you'd buy an IPO, you'd get it at 10, it would trade at 1050. Now you get it at 10, it trades at 980. So, you know, now we're looking much more in the secondary market. What you're also seeing that, you know, and again, SPACs have been around for a long time, but this iteration has not. So as more and more come out and we see more and more happen, you're starting to get some data. And the, you know, the more the time goes by, the more data you're going to have. So I've seen some real good data that the vintage of the SPAC matters when it came out. You know, if it came out in March or it came out last year, I've seen real good data that the size of the SPAC matters. I've seen real good data that, you know, second, whether this is a secondary SPAC from a sponsor team matters, you know, on and on and on. And again, as this market matures, we're going to see more and more of this. All right. Um, how to trade SPACs. One thing that people may not appreciate is from a market cap standpoint, SPACs are small caps. And, you know, in, unless you've got hedge fund flippers in there, a lot of people are buying and, and holding on to them. You know, I'm buying something at 10 and I'm, I'm hoping it pops at some point, but it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to trade it. So what we've found is it is way more effective to try to buy these things as blocks. So go out, try to, if I want to buy 50,000 of something, trying to find someone on the other side through a broker that's got 50,000 to sell versus putting something out as a limit order or definitely not a market order you know, what we found is, especially now that things have dried up, it's not that easy to trade these things in any size and you're much better off doing blocks. What we've also found is the shares, so SPACs come out as units and then down the road, you're able to split them off into shares and warrants. What we've started to see is the shares are a whole lot more liquid than the units. We initially kind of came into what we were doing with the thinking that, you know, hey, we're, we're going to stay with the units. Really doesn't make sense to split them. It's more trouble than it's worth. Now we're pretty much splitting everything when we're able to. And that also gives you a lot of, a lot of flexibility. You could sell the shares, keep the warrants, sell the warrants, keep the shares. So investment considerations. Again, that $10 level is so important. You've got to buy as close to $10 as possible. And again, now you can buy under 10. And what you've basically got now with all these SPACs trading under 10 is you've got a yield to maturity. It's not a massive yield to maturity, but interest rates are still ridiculously low. It's not a bad yield to maturity. You want to split your units up so you've got flexibility. You could, again, sell the stock, keep the warrant. Then you want to sell on any sort of pop, whether that's a rumor of a deal, an announcement of a deal. There is a massive difference from a risk and reward standpoint between a pre-merger SPAC, so you know, a blank check, $10 looking for a deal, and a company that comes out of a SPAC merger. Pre-merger SPAC, 
asymmetric return stream. Once it becomes DraftKings or Nikola, you know, who knows? It's an entirely different animal. It's got to be looked at, evaluated. Everything about it is different. So, you know, our strategy, very simple, buy close to 10, sell higher than 10, take the cash, buy more close to 10, sell higher than 10, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And then also being able to, if you can, capitalize on some founder shares deals. You know, there you're investing right alongside with the founder. The economics are extremely compelling, uh, where you're able to buy in for much less than 10, and then it becomes 10 once the IPO. And also what I didn't put in here is, is the pipe transactions, if you're able to participate in those, the difference between the pipes and the traditional IPO is on the pipe transaction, I have complete and total transparency. When I buy a SPAC on the IPO, it's a blank check. When I buy a pipe, I know exactly what's happening. I know when it's happening. You know, I know all of those things. So to me, having all three of those components gives you a real nice diversified SPAC strategy. Where can SPACs go wrong? So, you know, there's a lot of misconception out in the media. I spend a lot of time educating reporters, more time than I'd like. Um, you know, number one is buying SPACs significantly over 10. I read a story that pan SPACs and in the, the example they gave was client X bought a SPAC for 16 and now it's at 11. Oh my God, SPACs are awful. And, you know, my argument to the reporter was, well, who's going to buy $10 worth of cash for 16? That makes absolutely no sense. You buy it for 10 and you sell it for 11. So, you know, valuation is extremely important. Ignoring management teams, you know, the, the previous speaker hit on this. A lot of the SPACs out there are going to fail. They're going to return the $10. My guess is most of those are going to be weak management teams. Ignoring the market dynamics. You know, th this market is changing on a, a constant basis. You've got to be in tune with what's going on. You know, like I said before, buying IPOs, now buying in the secondary market, things of that nature. And then holding on to a company once it is despacked, which again, entirely changes the risk reward of what you're doing. And a lot of the negative press I see about SPACs, you know, again, a reporter will say, well, SPACs are bad. Look at, you know, DraftKings and Nikola and Quantum Space. And, you know, I want to throw a, a bottle at the TV and you know, those aren't SPACs. You know, those are public companies. They're correlated with momentum stocks. And, you know, I, I've seen decent research that companies that come out of SPAC mergers, you know, don't do that well. I've also seen decent research that they do better than IPOs. Who knows? We don't hold on to them. It doesn't matter. But, you know, it, it's certainly a consideration once a company despacks and it's DraftKings, Nikola, whatever, all bets are off. How do you invest in SPACs? You know, a bunch of different ways. Uh, you can go out and buy individual SPACs. I would highly recommend, again, if you're doing that, that you're diversified, you buy a lot of them. You know, you can't just buy one or two SPACs. You want to have a portfolio. There are SPAC ETFs out there. 
I would argue that active management in the SPAC ETF space is extremely important. I cannot imagine how you could do SPAC investing as an index because again, the, 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 the market dynamics are changing really on a daily basis. Um, the other consideration you want to look at when looking at SPAC ETFs is do they hold pre-merger SPACs? Do they hold companies coming out of SPAC mergers or a combination? Because that's going to entirely impact the risk return. Then there are also options. Uh, there are options on individual SPACs. There are also the SPAC ETFs that are out there, at least two of them, mine and another, I don't know about the third, do have fairly robust option markets, which allow a number of very interesting strategies. And, you know, we talk to hedge funds and family offices that, that tell us some of the, the neat things they're doing there. And that is it. So I will... Thank you very much, Matthew. And now, now the Q&A session. Uh, we will uh, start with Jonathan. Jonathan, uh, you are raising uh, your first SPAC. Why would a person with your credentials divulge into the market rather than staying in a senior traditional position in banking? Thanks, Simon. First of all, thank you for uh, for including me uh, in this. Um, so uh, just by way of a quick background, I spent 27 years in equity research, uh, nine of those years as a sell-side equity analyst, uh, and about half that time, 13 and a half years, uh, effectively managing an equity research department, America's equity research for Citigroup. Uh, so all of our U.S. and Latin America research teams. Uh, so Simon asked a good question, right? Why would I not just go back to uh, another bank or do something in a, in a banking role uh, as opposed to taking on something as risky as this? And I think there are three answers to that, right? One is just personally from a career standpoint, having spent 27 years in research, I was looking to pivot uh, and take on a new challenge. Two, uh, you know, it's just in terms of if, when I look at the people that I'm working with, uh, having a belief in the sponsor. But I think three, which is going to be the part that's most interesting to all of you, um, is where I feel like I can add the value. So a couple of folks, Stephen and, and uh, I, I think Matthew may have made the same point as well, that the key thing uh, that investors need to look at uh, are what is the value add of the management team, right? What what does the sponsor team add to the equation? And that's not only important to the sponsor themselves or to the investors themselves, but it's also important to the companies that will be acquired. They want to know that they're working with partners who can add value in the process, not just somebody that's going to hand them a pile of money and take them public. I think in terms of my own background, I've got a long uh, history of understanding what investors want, right? For 27 years, I worked with institutional investors. I understand what kind of stocks and ideas they like, what works, what doesn't tend to work. Uh, I've spent 27 years analyzing fundamentals, uncovering value for clients, leveraging my experience and my relationships with investors in, in all different kinds of ways. And this allows me to take those relationships and those skill sets and that experience and to leverage them in a new way to help clients find what really you want is that sort of diamond in the rough, right? That's how you how you succeed in the de-stacking process. Uh, I also have the sort of credibility in speaking with investors, right? Having had the position that I've been in <clears throat> and having a lot of senior relationships on the buy side, 
it allows me when I have those dialogue with investors uh, to help bring some credibility that I understand what they're looking for and what we need in order to be successful. Uh, and the same thing with the target uh, management team. So when we're having the conversations with target management teams, be able to talk to them about that experience and also to be able to help them when they become a public company uh, or in the process of becoming a public, a public company through the SPAC to be able to help them understand how they're going to need to interact with investors and bring that experience to bear. So my hope is that through the process and the experience that I've had, had I'm bringing some unique uh, experience and skill sets and capabilities to the target companies and to investors. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much. I think you gave us a very good overview. Why would um, executives be interested in uh, taking up roles in SPACs? Um, and now, Fred, what drives your interest in SPACs? Sure, thank you. Um, we are about a $2.5 billion health system located in Virginia, and we've done um, a few different SPAC deals. So I think the two different approaches as a, as a plan sponsor and as an investor in SPACs, the two different ways to invest in SPACs are, are quite different, obviously. If you invest in a pipe deal, um, at that point, the merger has already been announced. So then the exercise becomes more fundamental analysis on the target um, company that the SPAC will merge with. And um, secondly, if you invest in the SPAC at the IPO, the investment is essentially, as, as um, others have said, an investment in the management team. Um, I think the challenge from an investor standpoint in both cases is access. So um, the, the firm that we've partnered with, we've done a couple of SPAC co-investments at the pipe um, stage when a merger has already been announced. And we work with the, the hedge fund that we work with on the analysis of the company and you're investing in essentially a, a company on a go-forward basis. And if you've done the fundamental research, you know, you, you, you may want to hold that investment. We did do one deal that ran up so much um, after the investment, we sold it just based on um, a valuation that was hard to justify. And we, we also invested in a SPAC that this hedge fund um, sponsored with a retired uh, Major League Baseball player. Now, in that case, we invested in the SPAC IPO, and as part of our investment, the, the attraction was getting um, one quarter worth of warrants for every share we invested. But again, the, the issue was access, because it was very oversubscribed, and we were able to, to get access through the, the underwriter, through, through the hedge fund. So we have... Um, a diversified approach to, to investing in SPACs. And, and, and thirdly, this manager is going to be launching a SPAC, a dedicated SPAC fund, um, investing in both SPAC IPOs as well as the pipe um, investments in, in mergers that are announced. So we're going to participate through that, um, especially now given, given the number of SPACs um, out there and um, you're not necessarily getting that pop on, on merger deals now. So we think having having um, a fund investment that's an active management approach um, and also diversified across multiple SPACs is, is a good way to approach it. All right. Thank you very much. You really helped us to understand how uh, a family office or a hedge fund uh, can benefit from uh, SPACs. Matthew, uh, you already uh, 
gave us gave us some ideas how you would choose uh, the specs in which you invest. Can you please give us a little bit more um, of your examples of your thinking when you are looking at different industries, when you're looking at different sizes of the specs? Because you advised us to invest in a few specs, but how do we choose them? Should they be large specs um, or they should be smaller? Should we invest only with the best teams in which it is still very difficult to get um, some more ideas uh, for a practical uh, investor? Yeah, so, you know, definitely we skew towards the larger SPACs. Um, we're only investing with with the strong management teams, and we're trying to have a portfolio that's as diversified as possible. Um, you know, a lot of different SPACs, as, as many different industries as you can. And, you know, so, I mean, there'll be times we'll have 70 or 80 SPACs in our portfolio. And, and we also pretty much equally weight our holdings because, you know, you're, you're never really sure. You know, back, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, my favorite thing would be wake up, turn on the Bloomberg and see which two or three of our SPACs announced the merger and they were up five or six or seven percent or sometimes more pre-market, but you never know what those are going to be. So it's really just creating as diversified a portfolio as possible across a lot of different industries, a lot of different management teams. Thank you. And Steve, uh, you also spoke about the criteria for Credit Suisse in selecting the teams with which uh, you work. Maybe you can add a little bit of color about the industries. For instance, everybody is worried about the fate of uh, electric vehicles and uh, other kind of future industries and how they fit in the spec space. What is your feeling about kind of uh, big nose uh, in today's uh, spec space? Well, you know, look, um, it's like it's like any market, you know, IPO markets are no different. They tend to move from sector or trend to trend, and I don't think it will be any different with the SPAC market. I mean, EV uh, and, uh, uh, you know, new energy or transition energy had its time a couple of months ago. Uh, that's not to say that there won't be more SPACs in, in that space. But, you know, I would uh, – I fully expect that we're going to see – the SPAC uh, market gravitate towards other industries over time. Perhaps it'll move back to industries w- which are uh, uh, cyclical or reopening plays. Uh, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe more that have uh, more tra- that can rely on more traditional me- financial metrics like earnings and cash flow and so forth. Uh, but you know, time will tell. Thank you. And maybe I will move to the questions uh, which came from our audience. Uh, Jeffrey is asking, what are the risks for the pipe investors and how uh, do they differ from IPO investor? Um, Steve, I think it is uh, for you. How does SPAC investors differ from IPO investors or how do... uh, The the pipe. The the pipe. pipe. Well, at the end of the day, they should be, and they are often quite similar. Uh, 
you know, there are there are a range of SPAC investors that are, you know, looking to perhaps share in the promote and get a, a, a some additional juice on the deal, uh, you know, as an inducement to come in early because you're basically committing from the time that the deal is mooted until the time you get through the S4 uh, and, and the deal is effectively declared effective or, or, or closed. Uh, so oftentimes in, in, in the uh, in the pipes, we'll see kind of dedicated pipe funds. Uh, sovereign wealth funds, uh, more, I would say, uh, 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 risk, uh, risk willing capital. Uh, you know, whereas in traditional IPOs, that's a broader audience of, you know, of, uh, of institutions, uh, you know, that, that, that you're very familiar with. But, but there is a fair amount of overlap between the two, I would say. Because at the end of the day, your pipe investors are, you know, you, you, they're the long-term investors that you want for the business. Understood. Thank you. And maybe Fred, Steve, and Matthew, are there any industries uh, you would recommend to stay away from? I, I see many questions like this uh, in our chat. You know, for, for us, no. Well, hold on. I, I did, and, and I never looked to see whether this was actually true, but I, I did once have someone tell me there was a SPAC for online porn. Uh, if that was actually true, then that's one I would stay away from. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we're, we're looking to be as diversified as possible. Uh, Fred? The, the deals we've done have been in the electric automotive industry, tied to that industry. Um, I, I would make note that I read in the last couple of days uh, London is, is looking at the regulations surrounding blank check companies. Um, so looking at the concentration of all the SPACs raised here, um, you know, maybe moving forward, that's, that's a geographical area that could, they could see some activity that, that we haven't seen so far. Thank you. Matthew, would you like to add anything? Matthew or Jonathan? No, I mean, certainly we're, you know, we're watching what's going on overseas and, and we, you know, if we've got the opportunity, we would want as much, you know, because again, we're looking to be diversified. We want as much exposure, you know, as, as we could, assuming again, that it met all of our other qualifications. Thank you. Uh, Simon, from a, um, from the standpoint of the SPAC. Um, you know, obviously in, the, in an environment like this, one of the things that we've noticed is uh, the importance of casting a fairly wide net. So there is a value to specialization uh, on the one hand, because, uh, you know, you have the expertise of, of the founder and the sponsor team uh, that you want to that you want to be able to leverage and bring to bear. Uh, by the same token, uh, you want to be able to get the best, highest quality deal done at a reasonable price. And that means uh, being willing to cast a fairly wide net, and that includes looking at things like overseas uh, and, uh, you know, being able to look broadly across industries. Uh, so you notice that there are a lot of the SPACs are generalists, but even when uh, you are more focused on a particular uh, vertical, uh, you want to try to cast as wide a net as you can across that vertical to optimize your chances of getting the highest quality transaction at the best price. Simon, maybe on that point, you know, we, 361, we spent a lot of time in one, a lot of verticals. One is cannabis. I asked, uh, Anna just to spend a minute sharing what he's seeing in that vertical. 
Thanks, uh, thanks, Mark and Simon. Um, so, so I'm not a SPAC specialist by any means, and, and I really appreciate the discussion so far. I think in, in understanding the space much better. Uh, but on the cannabis front, I have interacted with uh, the SPACs involved um, for for in various ways. Um, you know, some of the key highlights of the cannabis vertical in in SPAC is there's already quite a bit of capital there versus the size of the actual you know, cannabis company revenues, I would say at this point. Uh, you can see here, this is, uh, from a couple of different sources, uh, ultimately from, um, new cannabis ventures, but, uh, there's a number of good size SPACs, uh, you know, for, for other verticals, it might, they might be relatively small, but for cannabis, um, you know, uh, the recent ones that have come out are ranging between, uh, you know, 100 to 200 million, uh, roughly, or in some cases above that. Uh, and, um, they're, they have a very good window, uh, if they've come out more recently. So the, the way I kind of look at it is the, the, the scope of potential deals is quite small currently, but within the next 12 months will really increase. So the folks that have windows and deadlines that go into late 2022, 2023, I think have a very good shot at, at some very good execution, uh, you know, opportunities. The ones that are coming due this year have fewer, and I think it's um, a little more challenging, and, and, and several people are have actually changed their focus. Uh, you'll see here, actually, if you could pause on this side, um, one of the themes I wanted to mention is uh, that, uh, actually, the, the, the one before this, these are the closed ones. If you go back a slide, uh, yep. So, so some of these actually have announced um, – uh, combinations, but they haven't fully executed. And, and a few had actually switched verticals because they were too big to, to do something in cannabis. Uh, but I'll, I'll just leave it at a high level. I'm happy to share this information uh, with anybody interested. Um, I think there's going to be a, a, a new wave of SPACs in the space. Uh, you know, some of the more established players that have already done um, that have, have big venture funds already or have uh, already done successful um, transactions like Silver Spike, for example, uh, they're going to continue adding to their series. Uh, but I think within the next six to 12 months in particular, some of these cannabis companies uh, that are, you know, starting to, to, to show good revenue traction are going to become a, a p- potential targets. The challenging thing, if you, if you can't get one company, is you, you, some, some folks have tried to do roll-ups you know, with multiple entities and turning it into some sort of a vertical theme. Uh, that's very, very challenging. I've, I've actually advised Merida's SPAC uh, previously, and uh, I know the Tuatara folks pretty well uh, as well. Uh, but uh, it, it, it can be very challenging to do kind of the combined company entity. So I'll kind of stop there. But in, in summary, you know, really this space uh, hopefully keeps – uh, being relevant in, in cannabis because the real big opportunities I think are going to come next year for, for sizable transactions that are meaningful and, and actually create value in that, in the SPAC entity, the way it's kind of structured to do. Thank you, Anand. And Luke, uh, you asked a very good question. Can you please repeat it for us? You probably didn't expect. I didn't see Luke. I don't see Luke here. Oh, he, he left, right? So uh, then um, I guess one of the questions which everybody asks is actually about uh, the uh, valuations of uh, 
of uh, the companies which go through this packing. And maybe Steve can uh, help us understand a little bit better what goes into these valuations. Um, because some people say that they're opulent, others say that they're fair. Um, Steve and uh, maybe Jonathan, what are your thoughts? You're talking about how the transactions are uh, 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 valued, right? Right. At the spike in, well, uh, look, by the pipes. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, look, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the SPAC enterprise is effectively a form of investment banking or, or merchant banking in a way, right? Uh, the SPAC sponsors are trying to arrange a deal that will clear the market. And in essence, they're trying, as when, when I was working with Gores, we always said we were trying to get the highest possible price for the target that the market will bear. So in essence, you know, unless your pipe investors are stupid or have some other reason for investing, which is generally not the case, uh, you know, we're trying to find uh, the, the level at which the transaction will clear the market and investors will buy it. Uh, and so typically it's not dissimilar to an IPO. If an IPO discount is anywhere from 10 to, uh, you know, 25 percent, where fully, you know, where, where comparable companies are trading, you would expect that, you know, the, uh, the pipe would be uh, around that level as well. Uh, maybe a little bit less depending on how risky the enterprise is. But, uh, you know, it shouldn't be dissimilar to, to, to an IPO in that regard and as we think about pricing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, anybody wants to add? I guess the only other thing I would add to that, uh, and obviously from our standpoint, we're, we haven't been at that stage yet. Um, but you do, you do hear about given all the capital that's chasing, uh, in some sectors, as we saw in cannabis, right? Of some fairly narrow sectors with a lot of capital chasing them that has the tendency, uh, to bid up valuations. Um, and, you know, I think to the points that were made earlier, uh, this is going to come down to whether or not ultimately, uh, sponsors end up finding it difficult to get deals done because, uh, you know, it's just going to be unsustainable to have, uh, transactions that are occurring at valuations that, that the market won't really bear. Uh, and so I think that's, that's ultimately where it's going to come to roost. And, uh, ultimately I think it's going to come down to the quality, as I've said before, the quality sponsor teams, uh, the, uh, the quality, uh, you know, the quality facts that are out there, uh, where they can, they have the credibility, they have the relationships, uh, and ultimately, uh, they're able to find the quality deals at a valuation that's reasonable and will clear the market. Thank you. Matthew, uh, you understand the situation with uh, the U.S. retail better than anyone else. Uh, uh, what do you think is the dynamic in that segment of investors? So there, there's two sides to it. So the the individual investor who is doing things on their own you know, they, they've discovered SPACs. Unfortunately, you probably had a lot of them getting in, you know, at, at the exact wrong time. And, you know, now a lot of them are probably on to, to something different. Um, I do think they'll be back. I mean, I think that if this market has not hit a bottom, it's very close. And, you know, the risk reward dynamic going forward is going to be really compelling. The other side of it is the the clients of wirehouse brokers, because for some reason, which I will never fully understand, you know, a lot of the wirehouses have kind of lumped in SPACs with, you know, cannabis, Bitcoin, you know, you name the things they don't like, and they don't let their clients buy them. 
I think at some point as this market matures, that is going to change. And you're going to see a, a whole new flood of, of retail investors have this open up to them. And again, I think once this market really matures for the retail investor, pre-merger SPACs are an entirely different asset class. And it's an asset class that should be added to a portfolio. Uh, I mean, this is an argument I'm having right now with the, the folks at Morningstar. Um, and, and hopefully they also agree with me that SPACs are an entirely different asset class. But that, that's kind of what we're seeing in retail right now. Thank you. You know, some people say that I have an accent like Schwarzenegger, and therefore I should start my own SPAC. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, all the celebrities who open SPACs, uh, how successful they should be or will be? Uh, should we actually buy the SPACs or sell the SPACs? Um, just as, uh, you know, we hear about all this uh, former executives so, uh, starting uh, uh, the SPACs. And uh, Jonathan gave us some kind of insider view on why he would uh, venture in the space. What are your thoughts? Is it good to have all the celebrities and former executives in the SPAC teams, or it is actually um, not the right uh, category which is likely to be successful? So, I mean, my thoughts on that, I, I think if they can add value in some way, shape, or form, then it's good. Uh, I think most of the time they're probably just, as I said before, they're probably just eye candy. And, you know, then unfortunately they, they end up giving SPACs a bad name because you see a whole bunch of articles about how the SEC is advising people to avoid celebrity SPACs. You know, in our evaluation process, we look through the celebrity. We want to see who's the underlying management team. Then after that, we want to see, you know, okay, does, you know, does the celebrity bring something to the table? Connections or, you know, something. Uh, to date, we've only invested in one celebrity SPAC, and you could argue whether it's a celebrity or not, but it's, you know, Billy Bean. You know, me as a, a Red Sox Moneyball fan, Billy Bean's a celebrity, but, you know, other people might not, not look at it that way. We don't own it anymore, but, you know, we, we did. And, and that's the only one. That's the only one we've looked at. Understood. Thank you. Luke, uh, you're back. Uh, your question, please. Yeah, so um, I think uh, Matthew actually answered the earlier question I had. Um, but the second question that I'm uh, kind of interested to know um, the panel's uh, kind of response on is that uh, have SPACs, uh, I mean, is there an attraction for a SPAC to be used for a certain uh, market for um, that has pretty much a, a pretty large dominance on the market to uh, uh, it's not in underperforming, but it's, it's it negatively trending. Um, and, um, you know, with different policies and that that are kind of uh, uh, government policies that are kind of hindering that, but using it, the SPAC is a reorganizing and also acquiring other offset markets to kind of help bring them out of that. Is, is that something that uh, could be used? Wants to take this question. 
Steve? I was going to say, I'm, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure I, I understood the, the drift of the question. My apologies. Uh, are you asking whether the SPACs can be repurposed to be used for to achieve some regulatory aspect or or, or for some other purpose? Can you can you please rephrase? More uh, using the SPAC as a mechanism to reorganize the uh, the markets and similar companies within that area to maybe possibly acquire different companies and maybe offset markets. Uh, they're uh, kind of very similar to help kind of uh, increase their revenue um, in a more positive trend. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I could really answer that in, in, in the abstract. Uh, you know, I, I, I can I can simply say that you know, look, uh, you can uh, you mentioned combining businesses. Uh, we, we do see many instances where. We're, we're, well, they're rare, but, but we, we have, we have uh, executed on these transactions where, where, where several acquisitions occur simultaneously and are aggregated within a SPAC, uh, so, you know, so that, that, that the resulting company has critical mass. Look, uh, I'll try to uh, answer your question the way I understood it. Um, the roll-up strategy doesn't seem to be a good strategy for SPACs because uh, the pipe investors understand that it's actually uh, not a guarantee that uh, a new company would perform very well. And given that SPACs have only two months, uh, two years to live, um, it, it is unlikely that they will go for like a multi-stage um, implementation of investment strategy. That's number one. Number two, uh, the industries become popular or less popular. So the SPACs can accelerate uh, this element uh, because, again, if a, a growing company wants to jump into the SPAC, then its competitors have to do the same to get access to capital. And suddenly three, four, or five companies um, start using this mechanism at the same time. So, yes, uh, this instrument can accelerate uh, a public um, – uh, uh, many companies going public within the same industry. Um, I would like to also ask one of the questions which the audience asked uh, about European SPACs, uh, to which extent we believe that Europe will be able to catch up and to which extent uh, actually the travel industry – uh, in Europe may be of interest, considering that it's uh, bitten down so much by COVID. Seems like the Europe is on hold. Uh, yeah. regulation. Anyone have a thought? Right. The only thing I would say there is, um, and I just had a conversation this morning with somebody uh, in Europe about this. Um, I think there there is a lot of discussion right now about, um, you know, how they want to approach the SPAC opportunity from a regulatory standpoint. Um, it is much less, uh, there's been much less uh, uh, that, that's happened in, in Europe in, in that front. Um, so there's Certainly a lot of good companies in certain sectors uh, where they're ripe for opportunities. The question is generally going to be, because we're talking about generally a U.S. listing, uh, if you're going to, you know, use a, 
uh, a SPAC for a U.S. IPO, uh, SPAC taking on a, uh, a company that's in uh, Europe. Uh, there's generally, it's going to be best when the strategy of the company that you're acquiring is either looking to expand its own footprint in the U.S. or there's something strategically that aligns with a desire to have that U.S. listing. Uh, so it's not just about acquiring companies internationally, but they're best if there is a linkage uh, to their strategy uh, with the U.S. Simon, I've got a question. I'm, I'm hearing from several Vester's SPAC sponsors. That's the SPAC sponsors that have already had their money, uh, but they're, think, they're seeing deals are going to be repriced. Uh, the higher percentage of deals is not consummating. Um, where do people put the over-unders on that right now? Well, uh, while our guests are waiting for their, uh, with their questions to answer this, to, the, to, uh, to answer this question, I will just share with you, uh, an interesting observation. As somebody who is working in the SPAC space, I hear a lot of Myths, and one of those myths is that many SPACs, um, uh, all SPACs which were uh, founded in uh, 2019 uh, found targets. This is probably true. The question is at which economics. And uh, the trick is that uh, the closer the SPACs are to um, their uh, final days, uh, the less promote the founders are willing to take. Uh, and that's when you, uh, and that's what this, uh, the statistic conceals. So there are, uh, the SPACs as um, the class of instruments is very interesting, but not all of them get uh, the expected economics. And that's why I mentioned that the three types of investors actually end up uh, not cooperating with each other, but rather negotiating against each other. Um, and uh, that kind of answers, um, Mark, your question uh, about the success rate. We may have um, two or three factors which will help uh, the SPACs to move forward, even if there is a crisis. One of them is that the SPACs, as Steve said, are very flexible and they can change their industry orientation. And therefore, for instance, recently a SPAC, which we wanted to invest in um, oil and gas uh, assets, uh, invested in one part of the world, invested in a lottery um, company in Texas, and that's possible. So that's the first level of flexibility. The second level of flexibility is that many SPACs may declare Larger, uh, uh, larger amount of uh, uh, capital at IPO uh, or small amount, but then uh, they can go for targets of a completely different size uh, just because, again, they're not required to go for $1 billion company. They target it, and therefore, if they find a $500 million company, they can also emerge with it uh, without kind of uh, losing money uh, for the uh, promoters. Um, so suddenly you realize that there is so much flexibility in this instrument that it is not really um, obvious that all of the SPACs will go under. They will be uh, probably repurposed at some point. 
I want, uh, I'm interested to hear other thoughts from our panel members. If not, I suggest that, you know, we answered most questions. It is not the, the last time we'll discuss PACs. Uh, we welcome us, uh, welcome to send us more questions and we'll answer them during our next Spark Deep, Deep Dive probably sometime in May. And um, thank you so much for attending our event and uh, thank you very much for your questions. And uh, Mark, as always, thank you so much for allowing us to uh, come to your platform. And uh, I'm very grateful to all uh, the panel participants uh, and keynote speakers for their input. Thank you. Uh, uh, 